This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Today, we're breaking down the cloud and SaaS trailblazer Salesforce. Founded by Mark Benioff in 1999, Salesforce has grown rapidly to become the global leader in the $100 billion CRM market. The business has 150,000 customers, including 90% of the Fortune 500, and is currently valued north of $270 billion. To break down Salesforce, I'm joined by Matt Garrett, general partner at VC firm CRV and former head of Salesforce Ventures, where he led investments in companies like Snowflake, Twilio, and Zoom. In our conversation, we discussed the attributes that make Mark Benioff special, how he pushed against convention to usher in a new era of cloud-based businesses, and ways in which he has built a world around Salesforce's product lines. We also cover decision-making in the company, why its culture derives from the beaches of Hawaii, and how it's transitioning from builder to buyer. Please enjoy this breakdown of Salesforce. Okay, Matt, so this is going to be a extremely wide-ranging and deep dive into Salesforce, the business, its history, what made it unique, how it was a pioneer. There's just so many different avenues that we could go down. Maybe you can begin just by giving us a level set on what Salesforce is, what it does for customers, and some numbers around the scope and scale of the business today. Put it simply, Salesforce is a pioneer in CRM, which is customer relationship management. So everything they do is really centered around customers. So effectively, it's a customer database that has workflow on top of it. It started with Salesforce automation. Salesforce automation is if you have a large enterprise sales team, multiple people, everyone's talking to lots of customers. You want to make sure everyone's not stepping on each other's toes. You want to know where deals are in the pipeline, how big they are, when you expect them to close. That's what Salesforce automation, that was the first product. And then extended into service, customer service, you call, you have a complaint. If you're internally, you need to log a ticket. That's a customer touch point. You want to keep track of the fact that that customer called and extend into things like Marketing. Marketing is essentially a database of customers and you're sending emails, texts, and other things to reach out to the customers. And also e-commerce. If you're building up an e-commerce website, you have customers that are coming in, they're transacting, they're buying stuff. You want to keep track of who they are. So if they do return it and you kick it over to Service Cloud, you can keep the customer service module. You can keep track of that. So it's really all the touch points of a customer journey through an enterprise is what Salesforce does. And give us just a sense of they're governing that whole journey programmatically and as a workflow. What does this add up to in terms of just revenue of the business? Obviously, it's a huge market, but just level set us there on how big the scope of this thing is today. Salesforce is massive. So this CRM category, broadly speaking, it's a $100 billion market today. Salesforce has about 20% market share. So if you look at their Q2 number, Salesforce did about $6.3 billion in revenue. That's up 23% in year-over-year growth. They've given guidance that they'll do about $26 billion of revenue this year. And so it's really amazing if you look at each of the individual products that we kind of walk through, the sales, the service, marketing, like the size of those. Each of those could be public companies. 
the sales cloud, which is the Salesforce automation, that's a $5 billion business. Service cloud is a $5 billion business and actually bigger and growing faster than sales cloud. Salesforce jumped 53 places in the Fortune 500 list to 137. So they're still even at that scale, which is impressive. I mean, just think about it, that scale still growing that quickly. They have over 150,000 customers. 90% of the Fortune 500 is a customer. If you have a sales team, a large sales team, you use Salesforce. And they're forecasting that by the end of 2025, fiscal year 2026, it'll be a $50 billion revenue business. How would you describe the fundamental equation of the business from a revenue standpoint, i.e. like if it's going to grow in revenue in the future, that revenue growth is going to be driven by a couple variables, the customer, you know, how much they pay, how many apps they use. If you had to break the revenue model down into an equation, how would you think about that? Their revenue model is commonplace now, but they pioneer the SaaS or the subscription model. So for every dollar of bookings you get, that kind of goes on in perpetuity. And so that's assuming that you retain that customer. Salesforce has about 90% retention. And so that just kind of goes on in perpetuity. If you look though over the years, that customer generally expands. So they actually have over 100% retention. So when you look at subscription models, it really, the key formula is like for every dollar of sales and marketing that you put into the business, you want to get a dollar of bookings that kind of goes on in perpetuity and continues to expand. So the issue is you're basically on these SaaS businesses, you're spending sales and marketing today for a booking that you don't fully realize that revenue because you're recognizing the revenue rapidly over that year. So you're kind of spending ahead of sales and marketing. And that's why the SaaS businesses often will have lower operating margins. The Salesforce operating margins around 18%. But the cash flow profiles are actually pretty good because you do get to collect cash up front. And so their cash flow margins around 16%. If we think about the basic revenue model as, okay, this is kind of like a sales operating system. If you're a sales professional, like this is the system, whole bunch of apps on the operating system that Salesforce has either built or bought to offer its customers. Obviously, you want a customer, you want to convince someone to make this their operating system for how they run their sales organization. And then you sort of buy or build additional apps, if you will, and charge incrementally for those apps that allows you to have higher than 100% net dollar retention. Is that the basic idea? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the software itself has a high gross margin. So 70% plus 73% gross margin. So there's no incremental cost for delivering the software. And so once you get a customer, you can expand two ways. You can expand either by Salesforce price, for the most part, based on the number of seats or users. So you can expand within the enterprise. So you land with Salesforce the Salesforce automation, you expand seats. The second way is then you buy additional products. You buy the service module for customer service. You buy the marketing solution for like email marketing. You buy the e-commerce. And so that's how they kind of land. And the thing also that we might want to get to in a minute, what really ties all this together is also the platform. So Salesforce is both call it a contact database for customer data, but it's also the workflow that you can build simple internal workflows. So it's basically this very flexible database where you can build a lot of different workflows on top of it and connect all your applications together. Yeah, it's sort of programmable in an interesting way. I want to come back to set this topic aside, but I'll hint at it now, which is the ways in which Salesforce has built a world around itself for third-party developers. I think Mark Benioff actually literally coined the term App Store or had it trademarked and gave it up so Steve Jobs could use it. So there's lots I want to talk about there. The stage that I think we need to set is the very unique history of this business. You've alluded to a couple of the key early points, which is that it was effectively the first 
SaaS business. And we all take that for granted now that we pay subscription you know, fees for software. But I want to go all the way back to its founding and have you tell that story. Like, What is unique about its founding? I think there's sort of a David Goliath story here that's quite remarkable. That's easy to take for granted now, but was quite intense back in 1999 when the business was founded. So tell us the founding story, a little bit about Mark and the senior team and why this was such a, an exceptional early story. The business was originally founded by Mark Benioff in 1999. He's still CEO and chairman today. He co-founded this with Parker Harris, who is his technical co-founder and a couple of other guys. And so he rose up through the ranks at Oracle and he was in sales there, had this vision. He saw that the industry was changing. He saw this opportunity to really build the first cloud company. And at the time, all the software, all enterprise software that people bought, it was delivered on-prem. So literally you would get disks, you would install it, and you would run it on your servers internally. And Mark had this idea and this very revolutionary way of delivering Salesforce in the cloud, which is how we consume all software today now. So it seems pretty commonplace now. If you think about it at the time when he was going to build this, he was going to say, I'm going to go out and I'm going to ask customers to put their most precious data, which is their contact data, in the cloud. We're going to host it for them. There was no AWS. Amazon was pretty early on. Just kind of the notion of going to do that was incredibly unique. What about Mark made him the right founder? And what about the time he made this right to attack this change in behavior? Like when you put it that way, it it makes it pretty stark. The fact that you're going to turn over your most precious data set to somebody else to host and deal with. And obviously that unlocks benefits, which is like continually upgrading and improving software. I think that's the promise of SaaS. Why was Mark... What did he do to make this happen? He must have been a great salesperson early on. There was a few key things. I mean, one, he had the insight of having worked at Oracle and they were in this business. Ultimately, they acquired this company, Siebel, which really created the CRM category. And Mark had actually worked with Tom Siebel. So Mark, through his experience at Oracle, he had the benefit of, he was in sales, he understood that business. So typical founder experience, you have that insight from where he worked. But Mark also was an amazing storyteller, always has been amazing visionary and just an incredibly inspiring person. And one of the initial things that he thought of is when he went to market was he thought of this idea of no software. And so when you're going to customers and you're sort of communicating what it is you do, people didn't understand what the cloud was. We're going to host your software in the cloud. It was trying to convince them, well, no, it's we're going to host all the stuff. We're going to deliver it to you in real time. You're going to consume it over the internet. Really, people didn't get that. But when they kind of said no software, they understood the pain of dealing with the incumbents. And that was, again, the way that the existing enterprise software industry works is you'd literally get disk, you'd install it. And anytime you wanted to upgrade, again, you'd have to go through it. And so you bought the software, but you had these massive service contracts that went with it. It was very inflexible and you kind of had to go year after year and you'd pay all this money to keep reinstalling it and getting services. And that was the lifeblood of those businesses that Mark was going to compete against. In addition to that, what are some of the other attributes that you think make this founder-led business really interesting and Mark specifically? I think one of the key things is it seems he has ability to see around corners. And you've seen this time and time again. So just when he laid out the business, there's this email that floats around where he very clearly lays out the whole world's moving to cloud. Within cloud, Salesforce automation is a very good opportunity. That's where the money is. People will buy stuff. We're going to deliver it this way. We're going to price it this way. That was the business model for Salesforce. I mean, the delivery model of cloud SaaS, the pricing model of subscription, all that bore out. 
And then you can kind of see, I mean, there's a bunch of examples, but I think one of the best examples was when artificial intelligence and machine learning started to really become popular four or five, maybe six years ago in the enterprise software. Mark does a really good job of figuring out both how to own the narrative on that and then put it in action. And sometimes it'll sort of, I think, zig and zag to get there. But the acquisition starting Relate IQ and a number of other companies that became Salesforce Einstein and building in some of the predictive capabilities and machine learning came through a series of acquisitions, but it was very clear that that was going to be a very big and important part of the business going forward. And just early on, Mark jumped into that and really, again, was able to own that narrative, market it, sell that vision to customers as we were still building it out. And he does it time and time again. It's a really remarkable, unique trait. Was there an example like a, of a story that hit you personally that you felt like, whether it was Mark or some leader at the business, maybe inspirational is too like soft of a word, but some episode where you felt like your attitude or behavior was changed because of a specific kind of leadership there? I think in terms of the type of people and being very visionary and sort of staying true to course, there were some large financial customers that were offering lots of money to Salesforce that they would offer kind of an on-prem version of Salesforce. Salesforce would have made a lot of money. And Parker Harris, the technical co-founder, said, no, it's like, look, if we give into this, once we sort of give that up, that's it. We're no longer the cloud business. Like we got to sort of hold our ground here. And you hear stories like that time and time again, where it's just that we have to always think about the long term of the business, think about the long term of the business and maybe making decisions that hurt the business in the short term for the long-term benefit of the business. In the early days, what was the reason for the first product? If you have to land a beachhead somewhere with this buyer, and I assume the buyer is the head of sales at some other company, I'd be curious who the buyer actually is here. Talk about that sequencing. Think about the dynamic in the industry at the time. So when Mark launched this, Siebel was this upstart that had grown. And people probably don't know much about Siebel Systems now, but first company in the Salesforce automation category, they grew several billion dollar market cap. It was the darling of Silicon Valley, but it still was based on this on-prem story and it was inflexible. It was really expensive. When Salesforce started in 99, and you've got to remember we had the dot-com crash and recession. So when Salesforce went out to sell, they came out. There's a lot of different value propositions that they could have sold initially in terms of you get real-time updates and all these other benefits. But the biggest was it was a lot less expensive. And so if you think about at the time, they were actually going to CFOs and the CFO would say like, look, and they're also going after SMBs, which is a pretty creative way to go after the market. People were typically not focusing on small, medium businesses at the time. And you go to a CFO and they're like, look, we don't have a million or $2 million to continue to spend or to spend on Siebel. Salesforce would come in and they could sell it for tens of thousands of dollars a year. And so if you talk to the early salespeople at Salesforce, how they would qualify their sales leads is effectively they would just look at whoever was a Siebel customer. They would call them and say, would you like to buy Salesforce? If they said no, they would call them back in a month or two and say, would you like to buy Salesforce? So that was the early entry point. And again, that's kind of the origin of this David and Goliath stories where you had this company Siebel that was the market player. They're very dominant, relying on this on-prem version and this new delivery model of SaaS cloud delivery, what was enabled Salesforce and Mark to come in and upend them. Can you say a bit more about this notion of Salesforce as a platform? I believe there's even like literally a programming language that's captive to the business. There's APIs, there's third-party apps, there's like all this stuff going on. Can you just describe the world in a little bit more detail? I think it's probably one of the most underrated things about Salesforce. 
when you think about the platform and the stickiness. And I say it's if you think about companies that get to past $10 billion in market cap, you can do that with maybe one product. But if you want to get to $100 billion, I think having a platform is what really enables that. But their platform story kind of has, I'd say, two or three different things to it. The first was, which is the platform itself, force.com, which it basically allowed you to take the Salesforce data objects and you could have a flexible database and build some workflow on it. What that really enabled is once you went into the enterprise, you could cover 80% of what they needed to do with one of the Salesforce products, the Salesforce automation of the service cloud. But there was a bunch of stuff that they would need to do and build custom things around it. So they built this low-code, no-code force.com, had a language apex on top. So you could really start to build anything. And that just created a tremendous amount of stickiness. There's this whole express saying that customers would come for the application, but they stayed for the platform. And I think that still rings true today. So that's kind of the one stool of the platform. The second, I would say, is AppExchange. And AppExchange is an enterprise application store, kind of like the Apple App Store. And really what that did was that allowed you to spin up third-party applications like a DocuSign. And instead of like connecting and having to do the work of connecting directly to the APIs and pulling the data in and going and doing all the engineering work, you just went in, you go into Salesforce, you go to the App Store and bam, you go into AppExchange, I should say, and you could instantiate it and it just worked. And that was revolutionary at the time. And also not only did DocuSign talk to Salesforce, but if you spun up Zoom or something like that, they talked to one another and you could exchange data back and forth. That's one of those things that there's a ton of engineering work that has to go on under the hood and pretty new at the time. And then the third thing was just the robustness of the APIs. I mean, Salesforce came out with SOAP APIs before there was RESTful APIs. And I think one of the things that people will often criticize, and this is one of the things you have to make decisions on where you go and where you prioritize your time when you're building a company. I think one of the things is people would say that Salesforce, the workflow is not as modern, it's the user interfaces and it's easy to use. But I think one of the things that they did really well, spent a lot of time on the API, so it allowed all these other applications to connect into, and it just created that ecosystem and made it super, super sticky. Again, which was a really, really hard engineering decision and a hard thing to do early on, but has really paid off and made the company what it is today. If I think about the foundation of the platform itself, it seems like it's this data model that is sort of the single source of truth for information about your customers. So if all of these other things sit on top of that data set, if you will, it'd be interesting to hear a bit more about what that data model is. How do you think about the core database that sits at the bottom of the Salesforce ecosystem for each of its users? So if you think about the core database, I mean, it's a pretty flexible, you can customize that and put anything you in, into it you want. So a good example of that would be a company like Encino. Encino was built on the force.com platform. And if you talk to Pierre, the CEO, and ask them why they were so successful, one of the big reasons was, A, you have that trust and security of being able to go into banks and trusting that it's built on the platform. But the second thing was just their ability to get all the innovation and technology that Salesforce was developing and build that. And so what Encino does though, it's a loan origination system. So for commercial loans, basically it stores all the loan information, all the customer information to approve commercial loans. I mean, it does a lot of other stuff, but at the basics. So the model's flexible enough. You can store sort of any sort of workflows and data in that and build companies on top of that. Vivo is a public company. 
sales application for the pharmaceutical industry, you have kind of unique workflows in there that you don't have in a typical sales workflow. So you could kind of build it for almost any industry. How do you think about the transition in their history from builder to buyer? It seems like in the last five years, a lot of their app growth, I'll call it, or their product growth has been things that they've acquired or enabled, like you said, with MuleSoft by things that they've acquired. This is like a cool capital allocation story and history here. What is the genius behind it? Why does it work? A lot of credit to Mark. He hired John Smornjai, who actually was my boss for eight years while I was at Salesforce. And they started out doing a number of smaller acquisitions, talent acquisitions, and built up that muscle over time. Probably one of the more early significant acquisitions was they acquired Instranet, which was founded by Alex Dayong, who ended up being the chief product officer for Salesforce. That was the foundation where they built out their second biggest cloud, which became Service Cloud. So Alex was a tremendously talented person. They acquired Instranet. And between that and Alex also built a bit of that out. And then they kind of went through this phase where they acquired other companies and trying to smaller scale assets to build out the next products, whether it was marketing or some of these others. It wasn't until like 2013 when acquired Exact Target, which was the marketing automation solution that became what is known as Marketing Cloud. So that's simply, it's a database. If you're Gap or someone like that, and you're sending emails to all your customers, they power the email engine and the customer database behind that. And so that really laid the foundation of acquiring large-scale assets. That was a public company at the time. It was led by Scott Dorsey. It was a $2.5 billion acquisition. That really laid the foundation of the acquisition strategy, which kind of had two or three prongs to it. One was continue to acquire innovative technology and teams are developing really unique stuff. And so a lot of the Einstein and artificial intelligence those teams that built a lot of that for the Einstein came in through acquisitions. But then the other end of it was when you're kind of going in new categories, if it was going to go into e-commerce, that was something where we didn't have the expertise there. We didn't have executives that knew how to run that. Those are really, really long builds. So Salesforce would go in and buy market leaders, did that with Tableau on the analytics side. That's been many times Salesforce has expanded and gone into big new markets. It's generally been through acquisition. What can we learn about Salesforce's especially early story? And I'm thinking about Dreamforce specifically, so I'd love you to describe what Dreamforce is and its own story. But this idea of building trust with customers early on seems critical. You already referenced this idea of if they're going to hand over their most precious data, there's got to be a lot of trust there. What can Salesforce teach us about new companies building trust with very big customers to do something new? Trust is, when you're at Salesforce, you always say trust is the number one value. It manifests in a number of different ways. Mark believed that the model was companies could churn off of this. It wasn't this on-premise that was installed that was really sticky, hard to get rid of. They could churn off. It was a subscription model. They paid monthly or yearly. And so you really had to have this trust with your customers. You have trust with your customers to put their data, take it out of their servers and put it in your cloud. That required a tremendous amount of trust. One of the more interesting ways you see that manifest was the first Streamforce. It was about 250, 300 people in a hotel in San Francisco. They were trying to get the room as packed as we could. All the salespeople were highly encouraged to bring and get their customers there. And one of the things I was talking to Jim Steele, he said that he helped build out the enterprise sales team there. One of the things he said is Mark came to them and said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to put our customers on and we're going to give them microphones and let them talk about their experience with Salesforce. People had done that before, but it was very scripted. 
And so Jim's like, Mark, what are you doing? Like, we didn't prep. We didn't tell him go through the script. Mark said, no, no, you don't understand. Like trust is our number one value. And we need to hear, we need to hear honestly from the customers. So they went around and they handed out microphones and people started talking about their experience with Salesforce. And it was largely glowing at the time. They were comparing it to a lot of this on-premise stuff, which wasn't that great. Got a bunch of these stories and Mark said, well, can you tell me what's bad about it? It was very positive. It was one of these things that it was always this combination of trust and transparency was at the root of foundation of Salesforce. Maybe talk about Dreamforce itself. I know it started with a couple hundred people. And I think now, if you think about world building as one of the deliberate strategies that Salesforce has employed, Dreamforce itself is like this crazy whole thing. I think it could almost be like a company in and of itself. So talk about that event and how it's evolved. It's described as a combination between user conference, rock concert. I mean, it's this combination of entertainment. And so it is probably one of the best sales vehicles. You have your top customers come in and it's a good way to close business for sure. But I think also one of the more important things and one of the understated things that what we would do a couple of days before Dreamforce, the whole company would go to Moscone or someplace like this and Mark would do a dry run of Dreamforce. And the whole company could see it. It was televised as well. And what I realized too, is that Dreamforce is like one of the most amazing demo days. Cause every time you're highlighting what the new products are, if you want to talk about pressure for a demo day, do it at Dreamforce where, you know, there's a hundred thousand people there live. It's streamed to like a million people. But the other thing that it really did was it helped to get the message to the company. And I think that was one of the things it's hard to scale culture and messaging and get people on the same page. And when you did it that way, and everyone was like required, you had to go and you had to sit and you had to listen to the pitch. It was a way of really unifying, understanding this is our message. This is how we're talking to customers. This is what's important to us. And I thought it was a brilliant measure to really get the message across as the company scale and grew from a few thousand to tens of thousands. The idea of community around a business has become very popular in 2021. It sounds like They were, once again, trailblazers of that concept. You mentioned something earlier, which I want to see how it relates to all this, which was Mark's inspiration from Hawaiian culture and sort of imbuing some of those ideas into the business. What's the story there? It seems like in the earnings calls, he's always got a Hawaiian shirt on or something or is even doing them from there. What's the connection between Hawaiian culture and the business? So the culture of Salesforce is really built around a lot of the Hawaiian culture. Mark spends a lot of time there. The founding story is, is that when Mark was leaving Oracle, He's a sales executive there. When he was creating the company, he was literally on the beach thinking about what he was going to do and coming up with the idea for Salesforce. But there's a lot of things that Mark would bring in that liked about the culture. The biggest thing was, as we refer to a lot, is the Ohana. And so Ohana, it's kind of not only your immediate nuclear family, but your extended family, your community. And the way that Mark would always communicate this. I mean, I think one of the unique things about Salesforce is just how customer obsessed Mark and Salesforce always has been. They wanted to make it that we don't treat customers just as customers. They're part of our family. And not only our customers are part of our family, but the companies that are building applications on the platform are part of the family. The company, the people that are Salesforce administrators, which I think is worth going into. It's one of the most amazing things about Salesforce. But those administrators, those are the people that stand up and implement Salesforce. They're also part of the family. And so there's all these different components to what makes up the Salesforce ecosystem. And it's important that we thought of them as family and not just transactional. And that was always very important. Anytime it felt like we were losing sight of the customer, that's kind of when Mark would jump in and sort of 
reorganize things and make sure like we're really focused on the customer. One of the things that stands out if you just look at like the financial statements for the company is a huge amount as a percent of revenue spent on sales and marketing. Can you describe, first of all, I guess, why that level as a percent of revenue? And then also the ways that that breaks down, like how does Salesforce continue to reach, sell to, market to its potential customers? Yeah. I mean, if you look at the expense line item, I think about 30% of the expense or more than 30%. It's by far the largest expense line item. That's sort of the key. That's how the business works is that for every dollar you put in sales and marketing, you want to get a dollar of bookings today, which that dollar of bookings should go in perpetuity, provided customers don't churn. Salesforce has about a 90% plus retention rate, but it also expands. And so that's kind of the engine. And sales and marketing spend is always ahead of where revenue is because you book revenue, but then you recognize it rapidly over the year. So that is the engine that keeps Salesforce going. And if you look at any SaaS business, typically they'll have about 15 to 20% of their employees are not only sales and marketing, but like quota carrying AEs. Like that's pretty much, oddly, it comes out around 17%. And if you look at companies in any SaaS business that's a high growth in the early days, they might be spending 75, 50 to 75% to 125% of their sales and marketing expense as a ratio to revenue could be like 50 to 125%. That's the engine that keeps driving SaaS businesses. If you think about back to the idea of it being a platform and thinking to the future of its growth, you obviously have to land a customer. It's kind of a per seat model. The cost per seat I'm thinking of as how many apps or how many functions does the customer use in their day-to-day workflow and their day-to-day life. To grow, you need more customers, you need more apps and maybe higher prices. As you think about what will drive that in the future, how big do you think this can get? They seem to have swallowed, I'm thinking of Slack here, for example. There's a lot that Slack does that's beyond CRM. I'm not a salesperson, I use Slack as my communications operating system. Is there ambition, all things business workflow? Like, Is that the way to think about what's become their addressable market? Yeah. I give you my perspective. And if you look at the evolution of Salesforce, CRM and enterprise software, it very much was this database of contacts with some workflow on top of it. Then that started to evolve. And then it became like multi-line of business. It wasn't just sales, it was service, it was marketing. You had that mule soft, so all that data connected. But then you started to get more into what I'd say like systems of intelligence and systems of engagement. And that's where you start layering in AI, machine learning. And that's where you start to think about more modern forms of collaboration and interacting with software. So one of the things about enterprise software in general is these are big applications there. You got to log into something, you got to go through a few tabs or click down on a few things. So it's not this super really efficient, high transactional way of getting in and out and getting the information you want. So companies started really thinking about how do you engage with voice? How do you engage with messaging? So some of the things that Salesforce did was it did acquire Quip. And with that got Brett Taylor, who's Mark's number two right now. But Quip, if you think about Quip is, people think of it as Google Docs. It's really a lot more than that. It's a collaboration canvas where you can take, where do people do work? People do work in spreadsheets. They do work in documents like Quip. So you can take components of Salesforce and other enterprise applications and have two-way sync. If you're just collaborating around a customer and you're writing notes and you're going back and forth and you have messaging built in, you want to have parts of the Salesforce like, how big is the account? Oh, well, let's change it. I think the account's going to be more. I think it's qualifying the opportunity. So you want that collaboration in the places where you're doing work. And I think that's incredibly important. That's what Quip was, was pulling that enterprise functionality 
in there. And that's kind of what Slack is too, is like, how do you communicate with your friends? How do you communicate internally? You message, you text, and that's what Slack is. So if you think about Slack today, it is internal communication. There is some enterprise workflows that you can do on top of it, but you can imagine that being how customers engage with Salesforce. You don't need to go into the application, log in and go through all these tables. You just want to say like, you want to ask about an opportunity. You just want to Slack it. It's really quick. It's efficient. You get the information out that you want. That's kind of where things are. And then now, as you think about where enterprise software is moving, it's really become very data-centric and data is the gravity, I think, of enterprise software. And so now you have all this data. It's in these databases. You have MuleSoft. So now you move data around the enterprise more fluidly. You want to like be able to take actions on it. You want to be able to visualize it. As we've gotten better tools to manage data at scale, that's where things like Tableau become really transformative because now... If you look at the productivity gains versus enterprise software spend, like it hasn't been that great. We've been spending more and more money on enterprise software for the last two decades, but the productivity gains haven't been that great. And a lot of the reason for that, if you look at any reports, it's because this, all the enterprise software solutions have been kind of siloed. So it may help that line of business, but it doesn't roll up to C-suite. It doesn't roll up to COO, CFO. And I think that's what's changing. Again, tools like MuleSoft and better databases and tools to manage that data. Now you can roll it up, you can put it in something like Tableau and you get this full view of the business. So you can see like, you can look at sales and marketing and how that's spent and do these trade-offs. So now the COO, CFO, CEO are kind of looking at the whole business holistically. That's been sort of the big areas of expansion for Salesforce over the last few years. And that, that opens up when you have platform, when you have analytics, it just increases the TAM massively. If you think about how the business itself is run and you were there for a long time, so you have sort of an inside view of the operating system of the business, which itself is then an operating system to so many others, how were priorities set and built and followed through on? Like if you had to describe sort of the operating cadence and how decisions were made at Salesforce, how would you do so? So one of the things that Mark pioneered was this thing called the V2 mom. Basically, it was you set out all the priorities. It kind of started with Mark and then it would trickle down to all of his directs and the next and next. So everyone in the company had to fill out the V2 mom and a lot of other enterprise companies have adopted it. And this was one of these things that we would revisit two or three times a year. Not only did it have to be in the V2 mom, but it had to be prioritized. You couldn't just like have a list of stuff and it couldn't have this infinite list of stuff. You had to have a reasonably small list of stuff and it had to be prioritized. That was really the guiding light and the guiding tool of how things were prioritized and decisions got made at Salesforce. How would that feel in practice? What was the actual exercise that you had to go through? Let's say you personally, just bring this to life for us a little bit. This V2 mom thing sounds interesting. So in the V2 mom, every year you'd go back and you'd basically look at, I ran Salesforce Ventures. When I first started, we were investing about $10, $20 million a year. When I, when I left, we we're investing about a billion dollars a year and had $4 billion on the balance sheet. So reason I say that is if you think about the vision for Salesforce Ventures, it certainly changed tremendously over the years. It started out as very tactical. It wasn't very visionary. And by the last, it was like, we want to be the best enterprise software investor. And so that was your vision. And then you would have the values, which were kind of like your top three or four high priorities. And you'd get together with your team and we'd often do offsites and we would kind of brainstorm around this. And you'd set the values and then you'd go down and you'd set, okay, what are the methods? Like, how are we actually going to accomplish this? And then you'd think about what are the obstacles to that? And then what are the measures? So the measures is important because you actually had in Salesforce, you would update this and these are the things you're going to accomplish. And we're going to do X amount of investments or we're going to return X amount of dollars this year. And so you would go back 
and update that periodically through the year. And at the end of the year, that's how you're measured on. I think one of the other interesting things about the V2 Mom 2, though, was that it kind of goes back to this thing of trust, transparency in the culture of Salesforce was we would do an executive offsite every year. What we do is we break out in groups of 10 and we would always call hack the V2 Mom. This was televised throughout the whole company. So you had two or three, 400 out of 50,000 employees, two or three, 400 execs in a conference room. And we would do the hack the V2 Mom. And this was one of Mark's big things. And you'd promote this. You'd kind of start by saying, what should we stop doing? What should we do more of? Or what should we start doing? And people would come up and they just they were free to criticize any part of the business. And that was like one of the biggest parts of those executive offsites. And there was, there was no sacred cows. Like you could be a reasonably junior person, stand up and say, I think this is dumb and we shouldn't be doing this. And we've lost sight of X, Y, and Z. And Mark would sit there and take notes and talk to the executive team around him. And that was one of the big ways that the V2 mom also had a little bit more teeth to it. Obviously, your function specifically at Salesforce Ventures becomes an interesting part of this whole M&A story of not just being inward-facing as a company, but being outward-facing with the balance sheet and sort of the vision. How did that integrate into everything that they were doing? Like, Was your mandate make the best investments or was it here's specifically what we're trying to accomplish by having this thing in the first place and it's got sort of a unique mission and therefore unique function? Our goal was to help accelerate and grow the ecosystem around Salesforce. In the early days, it was a little more tactical. And so we would start by investing in system integration partners, investing on companies that were building on AppExchange. But as we got further and further into it, it was very different than M&A. As we built up a good track record, we wanted to make sure that the most disruptive companies that were sometimes somewhat competitive and many times mostly complementary were better integrated in Salesforce. So we worked really closely with the product teams. And that was thinking about it was how do we go out to the coolest kids in Silicon Valley and build these really great unified mutual workflows that would benefit both of our customers. So that way, maybe sometimes there was some competitive dynamic, but we felt like if we had the best companies in the ecosystem on AppExchange, on the platform, integrated with our products, then we have to understand those businesses and develop relationships with them over time. And so when we did do acquisitions of companies in the portfolio, and I think it's one of the mistakes that a lot of companies make is they kind of think of corp dev and is more of a transactional, but it was very much a relationship and building that relationship and that trust. And so if you went and you did acquire, like you think about if you're a CEO and you're selling your company, the CEOs think a lot less about themselves because they're going to make a lot of money, but they're often thinking a lot about their team and like, is this a good thing for my team? My team bet on me. They made a big bet on me with their career. The absolute dollars, while important, becomes a little less important. And you start to think about what's the legacy I'm leaving behind. Am I setting my team up in a good place? And so if you have that relationship, and one of the biggest drivers of how we assessed M&A at Salesforce was like, is this a good cultural fit? Will this team fit here? Will this CEO be a good fit? That was mutually beneficial for both sides. So the investment arm was definitely not a pipeline for M&A, three or 400 investments. There's only a handful that Salesforce acquired, but it certainly informed it. If you think about the challenges potentially that the business faces, it's kind of a funny category because the revenue growth has been kind of nuts. But nonetheless, you have a David and Goliath story at the beginning where it was David, now it's Goliath. What are the Davids today? What sorts of threats do you think the business faces looking forward? I think if you look at Salesforce for the next five years, wouldn't have to do anything. <laughs> the company's still going to hit its numbers just based on the SaaS model, the sales team, and the quality of products that they have today. So I don't think there's anything that upends them in the near term. I think there's kind of three levels. Where they do have the most space, the most competition today is really in the SMB end of the business. 
as Salesforce is increasingly become an enterprise-focused business, you have kind of this next generation of smaller businesses that are easy to sell, easy to implement, easy to get up and running. And that's kind of an easier, quicker, faster sales motion that Salesforce just isn't as good at. I don't think any of those companies are really going to bend Salesforce, mostly nip away at the margins and maybe wrote a little bit of market share. Where you get disrupted, it's where do you have asymmetric forms of attack? And that's what Salesforce did to Siebel, as I mentioned. Siebel had this on-premise business model that was reliant on all the services around it. And they got these huge services contracts. So not only was there this technical mode of delivering it in the cloud that they would have to overcome, but then there's no incentive for it. They would have had to disrupt their own revenue and their own business model. So that's just really hard for them to do. So there is that I think are pretty interesting, as I mentioned, is data, I think, is the gravity of enterprise software. Increasingly, what you're seeing is with the advent of cloud data warehouses, more and more companies are pulling a lot of the data and they're pushing it into the cloud data warehouse. And then there's kind of solutions coming out that allow you to pull it from all your enterprise software applications, wherever it is in the enterprise, suck it all out, put it in, a, in Snowflake or Databricks or one of these cloud data warehouses, run your analysis, and then you can push it back into the enterprise software. You can push it back into Salesforce or Zendesk or whatever. And that kind of like erodes a little bit of the value and the data gravity that those things have. And you kind of extrapolate on that a little bit more. You're starting to see applications that can be built that are going to integrate directly with the cloud data warehouse. And there's things that what I gather that that Snowflake is doing that's going to allow you to like build an application and let customers keep all the data in their cloud data warehouse and the application just hits the data there and does work there. Those sorts of things can be very disruptive, I think. I think another area is if you think about the forms of attack or how you go to market, going up to the developers is also another area. And so there's this advent of open source and Jamstack, which are, you're basically engineers and developers are adopting technologies themselves. You don't even have to sell to them. They find out about it through their communities and they start building stuff with it. And then they can build enterprise applications and then give it to their line of business. So this is kind of what Twilio does. Twilio has a call center solution. They have SendGrid, which has some lightweight marketing automation. The engineers can start to use that. They can build their own marketing automation, their own CRM stuff, and then give that to their line of business. That's a very disruptive way of going about the market. And then you extend that some of these open source projects that have these large communities of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of users. You know, Companies like Vercel that can build websites your engineers building a bunch of the internal websites to give it to their marketing team. It has a front-end editor. You can edit the website however you want. And suddenly you look at Adobe, see that their AEM product, there's an enterprise and 70% of the website is running off of something like Vercel or something like that. That's pretty disruptive to Adobe. Like they don't even see it coming. It's coming up through the engineering team and they go and renew the contract. And the team's like, you know, we don't really need to pay you uh, the $10 million a year we do because we're only using it for 30% of our website. Why don't we renegotiate this contract? So I think those are the areas where that could ultimately disrupt some of these companies. You had to kind of think about it holistically and sum up the attributes that make Salesforce today the most unique. And I don't just mean hardest to copy, but that could be a dimension of it. But if you just think about the whole shebang, the whole company, the way it operates, the people, the products, et cetera, what do you think of the couple things are that make it the most distinct from other big businesses out there? We talked about the innovation around technology and how the business was started. What I call it the company with a soul. I mean, when they launched the company, when they started with this one 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 model, and this was like integrated philanthropy, donate 1% of your time, 1% of your product, 1% of your equity to philanthropic purposes. 
And what that does is it creates this sense of purpose in the company that's greater than selling enterprise software. And that permeated just throughout the company. You know, Mark since extended that. I mean, he's taken on social causes when Indiana was going to enact some controversial legislation that would disproportionately impact the LGBTQ community. Mark took stance on that. And that can be divisive, but man, inside a company, if you have a CEO and that has a culture like that, like that's hard to replicate. And that keeps people there for a really, really long time. You know, I think one of the other things was around the community. We talked about the power of the platform, which was incredibly impactful, but an extension of that is this power of the community. And these trailblazers and these stories, I mean, you hear people who someone was a, worked in a hair salon making $20,000, $30,000 a year. They had carpal tunnel. And within a few months, they learned how to be a, a system administrator for Salesforce and completely changes their lives, earning $60,000, $70,000 a year. Those people are the most rabid Salesforce fans. And there's this whole economy that's built around Salesforce. So IDC did a study a few years ago that for every dollar of revenue that Salesforce creates, there's $6 of revenue that's created by like the system integration partners, the companies that develop on the platform. And so you get this compounding effect that I think is really hard to copy. I think also just the genius and the vision that is Mark. I mean, I think you have these very few CEOs that come along in Silicon Valley that kind of have this the expression distortion reality fields. I think Mark is one of them. And you could have given, I would say, a number of CEOs the same business plan. The number of CEOs were going after this cloud model at the time. And I think it takes a very unique individual like that to build a company, evangelize a technology like this, face some headwinds in the early days to build such a Goliath. We always like to close these conversations with two kinds of lessons, and I'll let you pick which order to go in. The first will be for operators, and the second is for investors out there, which are subtly different. Whichever you want to start with, what would be one lesson each from investors, for investors, and for operators from all the lessons you've learned from Salesforce? I think for operators is, if you're building really big businesses, a lot of the times it's going to be very disruptive, and it's going to be very hard to get your initial entry points. And I think it's both finding an entry point that is as low of friction as possible, but then also the messaging around that. When Salesforce came to market, they could have messaged a whole bunch of stuff around like, oh, you get continuous updates and that you don't have to mess with all their stuff. If it goes down, we'll manage all that. It could have gotten really confusing, but they had this really clear message, which is, hey, this is a lot cheaper. And that was a pretty good selling point. That's what allowed them to go after. I mean, there was more to it, but that's what allowed them to go after Siebel. And I think that's one of the things when I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs, they talk about four or five advantages and they can sometimes be a bit diffuse. So from an investor standpoint, I think it's more of as you're sitting on the board, one of the things that Mark and Salesforce did really well was really to stay focused. They stayed focused on Salesforce automation until that was a public company. I mean, Service Cloud was part of the story then too, but that was really like, clearly the focus for a long time and didn't get distracted and build all these other things. And there's a bunch of other areas that could go into. And I'd say more importantly, too, on the M&A front, there's a whole host of areas that Salesforce could have gone into. Should Salesforce bought Workday or other things that were at the time at scale that you would see blog posts and go, Salesforce should go there. This religious focus of being front office and being customer focused is what allows this compounding to occur. All the acquisitions have compounded on another. And so that's where the going from sales to service to marketing, I mean, that is all customer data. And that is all the touch points of the customer. And then layering on Microsoft and, and the analytics solutions as well. And I think that's one of the things that you see this a lot in boards of 
there's all these things you could go do, but really trying to stay true to the true north of the company is really hard to do sometimes. It's a totally unique business. I mean, a crazy pioneer in so many ways. The term trailblazer, I think that's the name of Mark's book too, comes up over and over again, I think aptly so. Pioneering cloud, pioneering a lot of the API and platform type stuff and software, and and obviously have now just a massive business by market cap. So extremely fun, Matt, to break Salesforce down with you. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. This was a lot of fun. To find more episodes of breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com.